Pray with me. Uh, Father, we just thank you to be able to gather. Uh, last week was just a, a reminder of how much even one week missed without our community and our, our faith family, how it just feels empty. It feels like we're missing something. And Lord, it's a great reminder that we need you and we need each other. And what a blessing it is to have this building and to just be able to come in and, and freely gather and to just learn about you. And so for this lesson, I just pray for uh, your focus, God. And I, I do pray that um, fruit would come out of this. We're just being reminded of your gospel message alone, but also our response to it, how we were saved, um, that we would leave with just gratitude for who you are and what you've done in our lives. And would you empower us, holy God, to evangelize here in Spokane Valley this wonderful message of good news. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning. We, uh, I'm all thrown off because we're like behind a week now, but it actually worked out well um, because I could have more time on this lesson to forget about it, actually. <laughs> That's what happened. At first I was like, yes, man, I got a whole nother week, and I kind of forgot about what this whole lesson was about, so it almost made it worse. But I think we'll be okay here. Um, okay, so we've been going through the Cultural Christian Sunday School Series. We're getting close to coming to an end. We have about another month left. And, you know, three quarters of it so far has been about cultural Christianity here in America and Spokane. What is it? What do they believe? And then we're, we're kind of taking a quick, quick little turn into the gospel. We want to make sure that as saints we're equipped with remembering what the gospel is, what it does, right? And we remember, we were reminded a couple of weeks ago that the gospel is the, the only power to save a sinful man. It's through hearing the gospel message that the Holy Spirit works, to turn people to Christ. Um, so this session, uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we focused on what the gospel is, right? So we said that the gospel is scandalous, it's powerful, um, and we said it's a message for everybody. Everybody needs to hear this gospel message. Then we learned that the gospel is a message about God. Uh, it's about sin, it's about a holy war between God and man, and it's a barrier that divides God and man, both physically and spiritually. And we learned that the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ. This was one of my favorite lessons. It was such a good reminder. I left really encouraged. Um, but we learned that Jesus is the qualified redeemer. He's the only one who can save. We learned that the gospel is a message about his cross his resurrection, his ascension, and then we ended on our response. So this was the ending where we left off a couple weeks ago, saying that the gospel is all these things. It's this message about Jesus Christ, but it's also about our response, that this isn't just a story to be told around a campfire to entertain people and to say, hey, you know, it's a cool story. It has a great plot line. It's got a great ending, which ironically, Hollywood, right, a lot of movies have this plot line of someone sacrificing themselves to save others. We see that over and over and over. And I always love being reminded, even in a movie or a show, that, man, Jesus wrote this story. This is Jesus' plot line. He came up with it first. So uh, think of that the next time you watch a movie or a show that involves, you know, sacrifice for love and all these things. It's like, hey, my God wrote that story. That's cool. So ending with our response. And where we're at now is, 
I talked uh, one morning about how this gets messy between a Christian and a cultural Christian. And we talked about, well, how does this get messy or why does this get messy? And it gets messy because a cultural Christian, to them, the gospel are these three things that we spent a lot of time in, right? The gospel to them would be, I just do good things. I got to go to church. I have to do these things. Um, I have to give to the poor. I have to be a good person. As long as I'm better than so-and-so, then I think I'm tracking good. And then civic religion, you know, I live in America. I believe in, in God. I sing about him at the baseball games with everybody else. And it gets messy because then they would say, yeah, I embrace the gospel. This is why I'm a Christian, because I do these things. And we said that, well, there's a gospel disconnect here because that's not the gospel. So then a Christian engaging with a cultural Christian, there's this kind of gap. There's a chasm, right, where the Christian is like, well, that's not, that's not the gospel. And, and partly because what you believe is a trust and reliance on yourself. And the crux of the gospel is a trust and reliance fully on God alone, right? So as we went through this, we said, well, this is the gospel, it's not works and morality. It's not civic religion. This is the gospel that we spent great time in detail going over. So if that's the case, then what the cultural Christian believes is really not the gospel at all. It's a different gospel. And what we want to try to do is engage a cultural Christian into them learning about what is the real gospel, about learning this, this, this wonderful news that we spent time digging into. But the biggest point to set up this lesson I wanted to make is where a cultural Christian may think they believe the gospel because they're not really sure what it is. They're resting on their works. They're resting on morality. And they're resting on what they're used to in America to be saved. And that doesn't save. So if you engage a cultural Christian, then rightly, we need to provide them with something, an answer, right? Because likely if you're talking with a cultural Christian and you go through all this, they're likely to, to, to ask, well, then what must I do to be saved? You're saying being a good person is not enough. And you're saying, you know, I can't rely on myself for these things. So then what does save me? And this is what we're going to get into this morning. The gospel call. So the gospel call um, requires a response. It calls man to something. So what is that? What does it call us to do? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, I want to start with this Paul Washer quote. Um, should be at the top of your notes. Yep. First blue paragraph there. It says, what is a person's biblical response to the gospel? How should the evangelist direct desperate people when they cry, what must I do to be saved? The scriptures are clear. People must repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus appeared to Israel, he did not plead with them to open their hearts and ask him in, nor did he direct them to repeat a certain prayer. Instead, he commanded them to turn from their sin and believe the gospel. Um, before we get into this again, I forget every week. We finally have these in the bookstore. Um, a lot of this lesson, I dug out some things from these three series of books. These are great books. They're, they're easy to read, um, but they are just jam-packed, full of just good stuff. So these will keep you busy for a while, but it's not a in-depth theological heady thing that you'll understand. You can understand this very plainly. And this is gospel's power and message, gospel call and true conversion. This is what we're going through today and next week. And then the gospel assurance and warnings by Paul Washer. Get you one. They're in the library. They're awesome. 
Okay, so what is the gospel call man to do? First one we're going to look at is repent. The gospel calls man to repent. Mark chapter 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So curious, what comes to mind when you hear of the word repent? Turn. <laughs> Turn. Okay. Turn to God. Yeah. Stop going the direction you're going. Yeah, stop. That's an, that's another one. Yeah, stop first, right? Anything else? Again, not looking for right answers, just curious what what pops in your mind when we talk about repentance? Humbling yourself, yeah. Say that again, Ellie. Sorry, I can't hear you. Um, just that you start with um, a sense of awe of God. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. Like seeing God for who he is and his holiness and your sin before that. And a right kind of shame. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. The right kind of shame. I like that because shame could seem like a, a negative word, but there's something good about that. Yeah, Kel. <laughs> yeah. Feel guilty. Be sorry. Yeah, it's a good, good distinction. Or to maybe apologize, right? Repentance is being sorry for something and then apologizing. So the word repentance in the Bible literally means the act of changing one's mind. So Gloria, you're right. This is it. Let's say everyone remember this now when you think of repentance. So the big distinction that we need to make with repentance is that it, it is not just one feeling sorry about something they did, or even deciding to stop doing what they're doing, right? The crux of repentance is changing one's mind, and it, it, it requires like a literal changing of direction and thought. That's what that word means. Um, Eerdman's Bible Dictionary provides a helpful definition. It says, in its fullest sense, repentance is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. So a good way to think of repentance is a deliberate course correction. And what I like about Eerdman's uh, dic dictionary, or sorry, definition, is it says judgment upon the past and then a redirect. So it requires thinking of what was I doing, right? That was wrong or sinful. It's not just blindly like, okay, I need to turn my life around. I'm going to walk this way. It's kind of sitting in it for a bit, right? And being like, this is evil. This is sin. This is hurtful to my wife. This is hurtful to my family. Observing that and then choosing to, to not just stop, but to turn, not even just the other direction, but to turn towards righteousness. I think that's the crux of repentance too. It's not just turning a different direction. Like I'm doing this sin. I'm going to go down this path and try this thing. It's immediately turning towards light, going towards righteousness and what God wants to see. So Ephesians 4 paints a good picture of repentance, um, describing it as a putting off and then putting on. I thought that was really helpful too. It's, it's putting off, but then putting on, right? Put off your old self 
But it doesn't just stop there. Don't just put off your old self. That won't do the trick. You have to put on the new self, right? Stop walking in the direction of darkness. Turn around and walk down the direction of light. So the conversion of Saul to Paul is a, is a great example, biblically, of what this looks like. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think of the conversion of Paul that we can kind of say, hey, that looks like repentance there? He didn't know that he was What do you mean by that? He thought he was doing right. He thought he was doing right by hunting, yeah, hunting down Christians and, yeah. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, there's a big change there. Hunting down Christians, um, arresting them to then preaching their, their message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, bring God into the picture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like Barry said, right? Like he didn't know that he was he thought he was doing the right thing. Zealous for Judaism, right? Zealous for the one true religion. He was doing the right thing by getting these Christians out of here with their their heresy. So yeah. Uh, Acts chapter nine is a great reminder of Paul and his conversion. Um so the summary here on repentance, the gospel calls man to repent. The focus of Jesus Christ's mission was to call sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5, 32. His call of absolute surrender goes out to all people, but unless you repent, you too will all perish, Luke 13, 5. In his farewell to the disciples, Jesus commanded that they take his message of repentance and faith to all the nations, Luke 24, 47. Repentance in the Bible involves a complete and irreversible change of mind, heart, and actions. Repentance recognizes that our sin is offensive to God. To repent means to make an about-face, heart-directed turn away from self to God. From the past to a future ruled by God's commands, acknowledging that the Lord reigns supreme over one's existence. So real helpful um, explanation of what repentance is. That's the first thing the gospel calls man to do. Next, it calls man to believe and confess. And I think this is where things start to get off track a little bit with some. Believe and confess. We learned the last few weeks that the gospel tells us all these wonderful truths, right? How we were created. How we became separated from God. How God created a way to save us. And what will happen as a result of us sinning? So we learn about all these points, but the message ends with this spotlight on Christ, right? Here's, here's the problem. Here's what's going on. Here's the answer. Jesus Christ. And it says that he can save anybody who calls upon his name. So the gospel is a call to believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And most everybody is fine with that, right? There's no problem with that. That sounds good. Romans 10, 5 through 13 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, 
Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is one of the most important passages when it comes to uh, what a person needs to do to be saved. Believe and confess, but it also becomes a stumbling block for a couple reasons. Firstly, it's a stumbling block because it affirms that it is 100% impossible. Impossible for a person to become righteous before God through human effort, through human merit. Let's look at verses 6 through 7 again. That's what this point is making here. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will send into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Like, we need to do these things. We need to go to Christ. We need to, we need to either bring him down or raise him up. It's saying that none of that is required. The second hurdle, and the, probably the biggest, is that this has been misused to model easy believism through rituals like the sinner's prayer. How many of you have heard of the sinner's prayer? Yeah. Um, it's, it's rampant. Um, signing a card or a public confession, the scripture is used to say, you know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. So say this prayer with me, and inside the prayer is some verbiage about saying that Jesus is Lord, and when you do it, congratulations, welcome to the family, you're a believer. These methods have become extremely popular in the last probably 50, 60 years, especially in the American church. And it's looked at as an invitation, right? We want to invite sinners to the faith by way of a one-time decision or a declaration. And this is, this is done with goodwill, right? Um, if the Christian band comes to Spokane Arena and they play the concert, they're focused on, hey, we're going we're gonna to invite people at the end of this. Like, this is the focus. And that's a good thing, right? We want to make sure that we're not just performing, singing. At the end, we want to invite people to accept Christ into their heart. And so we see that through a lot of ways like that. Regarding the sinner's prayer, Paul Washer says, although there's some truth in these various elements of the sinner's prayer, there are several serious objections that we should raise to this method of inviting sinners to Christ. First, it has no biblical precedent. It was not employed by Christ, the apostles, or the early Christians. And that's an interesting point. Second, it was unknown to most of the church throughout history. It is a recent invention. Third, it has the danger of turning the gospel into a creedal statement. Numerous individuals who show no biblical evidence of conversion believe themselves saved simply because at one time in their lives they made a decision for Christ and repeated the sinner's prayer. Fourth, it has almost entirely replaced the biblical invitation of repentance and faith. Fifth, it has become the primary and often only basis of assurance. That is, many individuals who bear little or no evidence of God's work in their lives are convinced or assured of their salvation only because once they prayed the sinner's prayer sincerely. All of this distorts one of the most powerful teachings 
of the scriptures on sola fide and one of its most powerful promises to the people of God. So a simple repetition of words, a simple profession of belief, or a confession even out of one's mouth cannot be enough for assurance of salvation. Why is this so? Oh, you said heart. Yeah. The heart plays an important role in a confession, right? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what kind of works then are we talking about? You know, obedience, right? Just as Jesus obeyed the Father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Godly sorrow. Mm. Godly grief, yeah. Now we're just going down the line. I like this. The Aiden family. Rocking it. Well, it's, it's a sneaking dependence on words. Because at that point, you're not having faith in God. You're having faith in having said the right prayer form. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a rite of passage. or It's like the answer is why go to yeah. When he baptizes him, <laughs> baptize. <laughs> you have not been baptized. Yeah, and he thought that's why they were losing. That's a great example. Good job, Abigail. That was great. Yeah. Can we display that here? Can someone? Can you give me a bowl of water, Kel? We'll baptize Bob real quick. <laughs> yeah, no, but that brings up a really good point because I didn't even think of that. Is um, It's also not healthy for the, the evangelist, right? Because it can make us easy feel like, man, we did a good job today. I mean, we, I had six people that I said the sinner's prayer with me all together. Like we just huddled up and, and that could be false just assurance for myself as an evangelist or make me feel like, hey, my work's like God's proud of me because we did this. Or we're succeeding as a church. And we've talked about this before, right? Churches um, will gauge their success as a church based on things like this. How many decisions did they make at the VBS event over the summer? But more importantly, Kathy talked about the heart. Romans 10, we don't see a simple act of profession here. We see two actions, right? We see two things, verbal confession, but belief from the heart. That's the ticket, right? And I would dare say that it starts in the heart and then comes out of our mouth, right? Heart to the brain. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, can't miss that part. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So true belief in Christ requires both the mouth and the heart. And very important. And in the scriptures, the heart, usually when it's mentioned, it refers, it's a very strong uh, Jewish word. It, it, re- it refers to just the core of a person, right? The command center of what everybody is, of the soul, lies within the heart. So this is a very big thing to say that you need to believe in your heart. So a belief in Jesus in your heart is a wholehearted trust that not only affirms that Jesus is Lord, but that you believe everything that the Bible says about him. It's not just 
he sounds like a good idea, or I can see him existing, so I believe that, or I believe there's a higher power, that's not enough. This belief in the heart produces a radical, radical change from inside out in a person. And this leads to then the believer producing fruit. Someone said that. I don't know if Elliot, that was you, but then we'll start to see fruit as a result of this true profession inside someone's heart. Off-the-street evangelists will use the illustration of a parachute um, for, to, to kind of convey to people, to help people think through. It's not just a profession with your mouth. You've got to believe in your heart. And I think it's a good, I mean, there's holes in all illustrations, but uh, this is helpful because it's like to say you're on a plane and you see the parachute strapped up against the side of the wall, and you're like, hey, a parachute. I believe that that works. I believe there's a reason it's on this plane, and I believe that reason it's on the plane is to save lives in case we start going down. So you start going down in the plane, it's crashing, and you're like, there's that parachute, it's saved. You fell out of the plane, and the parachute's falling right next to you, and you never put it on. It does you no good. You see that the parachute exists. You even believe that it's saved, but you're not using it. You're not putting it on. I think that's a great illustration to use as far as what genuine belief from the heart looks like. It's not just saying I believe Jesus exists and that he can even save. I believe it so much that I'm going to put Jesus on, which will change my life, change the direction. All right. Um, next, we're going to talk about, uh, we talked about heart belief. Now uh, we're going to talk about what it means to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This one's funny because it seems simple, like, oh, well, let's, let's just focus on the heart part because that's where people get you know, get it wrong or get a lot of misunderstanding. Confess, that's pretty straightforward. But even this has an interesting, deeper meaning that I want to kind of dive into. Uh, what do you think, though, first off, of what it means to confess Jesus as Lord? And I know it's kind of a silly question because it's like, well, no, duh, Dave. You just vocally say you confess Jesus as Lord. And that's, that's fair. That's true. What else, though? Yeah, what is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, what is Jesus Lord over? That's a great point. Yeah, I read in the Bible what God did to Pharaoh, right? How God showed Pharaoh who the true king is and his power as he rescued the Israelites. But do I believe that that God is that powerful over my life? Is he my king? Is he my ruler? And that's what we're getting to where confession, Jesus is Lord with your mouth, really comes to an identity. It's centered around identity. Okay, because you're not just spewing out facts. Jesus is Lord. It's saying Jesus is my Lord. And there's repercussions to that, that we just don't understand today. So understanding the context of what it means to confess Jesus is Lord is huge. It's, it's really huge. Um, and it's just really hard to comprehend it today in our culture because we're not, we're not persecuted 
and not even persecution, but even imagine ruling where Caesar's, you know, the emperor, like what that would even look like in America. We don't even know what that's like to live in that type of environment. And so in the Roman world, there was only one Lord who was Lord in the Roman world. Caesar is Lord, which means there is massive consequences. And we're not talking a citation, right? We're talking like hanging people up and burning them alive kind of consequences. Caesar is Lord. And there's plenty of recorded history that highlights what happens to people who don't profess Caesar as Lord. It's terrible, uh, especially for Christians. Because for a Christian, if Jesus is Lord, then that means Caesar is not. See what I'm getting now with this profession of Christ. If you're professing Christ as Lord, then that means other things in your life aren't. And that includes yourself. I think that's probably our biggest hurdle today in America that we have to look at and tackle is ourself. Back then, it was Caesar. Because what would happen was uh, there's stories of people just getting pulled off the roadside by Roman guards. And they would just, it would be, they'd see a family and they just want to mess with them and they'd maybe suspect they're Christians and they would say, who's Lord? What do you do in that moment? If they say, Jesus, well, terrible things would happen to their family and to them in front of their family. Confessing Jesus, uh, Caesar's Lord, then produces that heavy weight of guilt, of denying Christ. Uh, there's stories of people who would force, um, force people, strangers, to worship their Roman gods in front of them. They would force them to deny Christ in front of them. There's all kinds of things that people would have to go through through rituals just to prove that Caesar was truly Lord to them. So thousands of Christians have, have died over this truth that I'm teaching on this morning, and we just can't understand what that's like to profess Jesus as Lord. And the question is, is would this be the same for cultural Christian today? Or would they buckle? Would I be able to stand up to that? <laughs> you know? Um, the summary here, Romans 10, 6 through, uh, 6 through 10, teaches that we are saved by faith alone. Christians do not earn salvation by some heroic feat or exhausting endeavor. Rather, they receive it by faith in the person and work of Christ. Those who truly believe have long given up any and every attempt to establish their own righteousness. They have fallen upon Christ, and upon his virtue and merit they stand. One such manifestation will be the confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ through both word and deed, regardless of the cost. So believe and confess. Believe in the heart, confessing with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord, confessing him as Lord, which means that he truly is Lord. Um, it's, an, it's an identity change. All right, last, um, the gospel calls man to receive Christ. We're going to go back here and look at another couple texts that are often misused to support easy believism uh, the way it is in modern-day evangelism today when it comes to receiving Christ. So let's look at these. Sorry, quick drink. Okay. John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then Revelation 3.20 is probably one of the biggest misunderstood texts when it comes to receiving Christ. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Quick thoughts. What, what are some of the ways that this could be misunderstood? Yeah. It's up to us to open the door. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, it um, can be looked at as, yeah, that's a really good one. That Jesus is knocking on all of humanity's hearts all the time, waiting to see if anyone's home. Mm. Yeah. Puts Jesus in the position of pleading with you to let him in. Yep. Yeah, this is a big one, right? I mean, this is in Revelation, which is one of the most confusing <laughs> books of the Bible. It's rich. And it's interesting to me that it's used in, in a very basic evangelistic approach. There's some interesting things there that we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, but yeah, receiving Christ when it comes to the cultural Christian is often misunderstood as simply just bringing him into their lives like an accessory, right? We all know what getting that accessory is like. We have the main component, whatever it is, but we want just this addition that's going to make this accessory even better, right? And it's not uncommon for people to be told by evangelists today that they have a wonderful family. Chuck, you have a wonderful life. You have been blessed by God, brother, but you're missing one thing, right? You're not complete yet. You got a lot going for you. You raised a good family. You had a good job, but you're not complete because you're missing one thing, and that's Jesus. Then you're invited to receive Christ like a cherry that goes on top of the cake to make you complete and whole. But this is not what the scriptures teach when we start digging into things, right? Nor is adding Jesus a part of your life biblical. I'm going to talk heavy about this for the sermon this morning. Uh, ironically, it's going to fit really well into this. But to receive Christ is to take him as whole. Where in the scriptures do we see Jesus say, hey, I just want you so bad. Just give me whatever you got. Right? I just want you to know I'm here for you and I want to be yours. So if you give me even your scraps, I'll be happy with that. It's the complete opposite. Jesus makes it very, very clear what he expects his disciples to be. I'm giving you spoiler alerts right now. so <laughs> You should, though, because you're all here for Sunday school. You deserve something. <laughs> but see, receiving Jesus is to take in everything about him, including his lordship, which requires someone else to step down from command. And who's that? It's you. So it's interesting when you think, okay, the gospel call is a call for man to repent, to believe and confess, and to receive Christ. You see the richer meaning of this now. To receive Christ means that you got to let go of something. you got to make room. And, and that's not just like a little bit. It's complete abandonment of yourself. I think a good illustration of this is you're a king of a castle. You've been a king forever. You're, you're old and gray. You have a legacy. And as it naturally goes, your guys are getting destroyed by surrounding nations. They're younger. They're stronger. Your castle is falling apart. 
your people are sick, they're starving, and you know that total destruction is imminent. Well, let's say this young, strapping king that looks like Barry comes riding up on a stallion, and he says, hey, I'm king of this nation, and I'm willing to help you if you let me in. Okay? So what does that look like then? Does it look like, thank you so much for your help, come on in, you be in charge of the archers. Um, they really can use the most help. So you come in, you, you seem wise, you seem like you know battle strategy. I want you to help the archers out. I'll keep, you know, kind of ruling over here. Is that what that looks like? No. The king is going to want full control over everything. Like, if I'm going to come in, then you're, you're letting me be the new king, which means you step down. And even more important, all your soldiers, they need to know this, that I'm the new king. This is a great illustration of what it means to receive Christ. You, you have to make that decision to boot yourself out of Lord of your life and you let Jesus take control. Jesus cannot be received in part. So people can't just take and embrace one aspect of who he is. I, I just, I love Jesus because he loves me so much. Or I love Jesus because he's a good teacher. Um, it really helps me to raise my kids because there's some really important lessons in the Bible about that that will benefit me. You can't just take Jesus as a buddy or a friend. Right? He's just my, he's my homeboy. If you receive Jesus, then you are to take him as Lord. And that means that you can no longer be Lord of your life. So to truly receive Jesus requires a redirect in what you treasure, what you will, to see everything about your life as worthless and pointless compared to the value of this new king who's ready to come in and, and save you from total destruction. Washer says, it is the task of the gospel preacher to convince people that they are nothing and that they have nothing apart from Christ. The true gospel message ransacks the soul and carries off every spoil. Isn't that good? The gospel message ransacks the soul and carries off every spoil. It leaves the heart with nothing so that Christ may enter in as everything. So next let's look at this popular verse from Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Um, Christ at Heart's Door is a famous painting by an artist named Sam and Warner. Uh, super famous painting and it's really popular even among uh, evangelicals but also Roman Catholics. And this painting is a depiction of Christ, of uh, him in the church of uh, Laodicea here in the passage. And you can see there's intentional, uh, there's, no, there's no hinges and there's no doorknob on the outside. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah, Lori, Lori hit, it, hit it too on that. Um, it's not intentional for Jesus to open himself and let himself in. You, he's waiting for someone to open it for him. So there's some, a lot of symbolism here that really is just pushing this narrative that God is willing to save people, but he won't pry open the door and he's not going to barge in. He's going to wait until you, you answer it. So it's up to the person then to allow Jesus into their heart, uh, whether or not they're going to be saved. We're going to go into more detail about this, about the heart, the will, I know this raises a lot of questions, and uh, next week's lesson we're going to talk all about regeneration and what that happens there. So come back next week for that. Um, 
Now, it's a beautiful painting, right? But here's the problem that we get into with media, art forms. I love art. I love music. It's a blessing and a gift from God. But here's the problem we get into is we can tangibly see this. We see the colors. It's beautiful. We can hear a song that is beautiful. The melodies are great. And it's easier to believe what that's teaching because you love it versus just what the Bible says. Because it's a lot easier to just look at this and understand what it's depicting than actually studying the Word of God. This is a lot easier. So then we run away with truths that come from man that were created out of art forms versus what the Bible actually says. So if we dive into Revelation 3 and we look at what it really means, first of all, in Revelation 3, God's not knocking on man's heart. Right? What's he knocking on? Anybody know? I had to study this too, so I wouldn't be like, oh, I, Church of Laodicea. There it is, right? Boom. You are a Berean, Ryan. Man, does anybody know about the Church of Laodicea? You remember? Lukewarm. Was that a good thing? Yeah. So we know in Revelation he has charges against seven churches. Some of them are good, and there's some that are really bad. And the church of Laodicea was not on the good list, okay? So he's not knocking on the door of a man's heart. He's knocking on a church door at the church of Laodicea. Next, we don't see him asking people to invite him in by way of a prayer to their heart. We see that nowhere. He's not calling unbelieving seekers to faith in the gospel either. He's rebuking a lukewarm church in Revelation 3. So this isn't the warm, fuzzy, you know, just waiting for someone to answer the door in this beautiful message of evangelism. Jesus is rebuking a church for being lukewarm. And the irony here is that this church in that time would be full of cultural Christians and how we're defining them. Isn't that ironic? Because it's a church that wants to do church without Jesus. That's what this is painting. That's why Christ is outside. Like, hey, y'all are in there doing church. That sounds great, but I'm out here. So there's, there's a problem. And that's what cultural Christianity is. It's doing Christian things. It's doing religion without Christ. So in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus, um, he addresses these seven letters to churches. Church of Laodicea is one of them that is being rebuked. So that's important to remember. Um, there's a commentary here I put that explains what's happening in Revelation 3.20, Jesus is not pleading with an individual to be saved. He's seeking admittance to a church. It's alarming to think of Jesus standing outside of the church and knocking, but that's the position he was in. The Laodicean church had shut the door on the head of the church. They were smug in their prosperity, but Jesus was left standing in the cold. He was an outsider to the hearts of the entire congregation. So the context here is directed towards a wayward church, not someone begging and pleading and asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And it's very ironic when we look at what cultural Christians believe today. And this verse serves as a warning to us as a church too, right? I don't ever want this church to become a church where Jesus is outside in the cold knocking to get in. <laughs> do you? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deep warning for us as well. Um, summary, to receive Christ is to exchange all of your life for all of his. 
your will and authority for the will and lordship of Christ. For the sake of illustration, let's say that Christ is knocking on the door of a human heart. This is typical Paul Washer form here, but this is really good. For the sake of illustration, let's say that Christ is knocking on the door of a human heart. He offers a person great promises of healing, peace, and eternal life. Then on hearing the benefits of such salvation, the person reaches for the handle of the door and is ready to open. However, before he moves the latch, Christ speaks to him a word of warning. If you open the door, I will come in and fulfill every promise I have made to you, but I will come as Lord, and my will is law. All that you are and all that you have is mine to do with according to my good will and purpose. You will be my servant, and I will be your Lord. I will teach you, test you, discipline you, and take from you everything that does not please me. I will take mastery of your life and conform you to my image. Be forewarned. The moment you open the door to me, you will close the door to everything else. A yes to me is a no to the world, and to gain me is to lose the world. Any thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah, if you take this illustration and say, okay, fine. Jesus is knocking at your, your the door of your heart. But what happens when you let him in then? And, and, and nothing ever even goes further into teaching. That. It just kind of ends there. Like you, you let him in. And the movie's over, and you go home, and the story is done. And you're missing, there's so much there that's, that you're missing. Yeah, Kevin. Yes, very good truth. And that, Kevin, is what repentance looks like, right? It's a change in direction. So repentance is required in an evangelistic message. You want to be a Christian, you have to repent. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means you you examine your life. What's going on in your life right now that you know is sin? And if you don't know what's sin, then pray to God to reveal it, and he will show up and do that. And it's identifying what that is. And then it's looking at it. It's, it's uh, seeing it for evil and, and, and sin against God. And then it's turning and going towards righteousness, right? It's believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Changing desires, right? Your heart belief will change your desires. It will yield fruit. And that's where we don't see within a cultural Christian is we don't see spiritual fruit. Because there's no roots of true faith planted in the ground. It's verbal confession. It's this thing that we're talking about where I say this, I say I'm a Christian, I say I believe in Jesus, uh, I say that he is Lord, but there's nothing underneath the soil. And then we receive Christ, and this is a change in ownership. I thought this would be helpful to look at these three things. Repentance is a change in direction. Believing and confessing is a change in your desires. 
and receiving Christ is a change in ownership. And what happens when these things are embraced, there's no more trust. I'm not going to say there's no more because we struggle with that today. But the trust and reliance on yourself is redirected then to a trust and reliance on your new king, the king who came into your castle, who's young and strapping like Barry, and is going to save every everybody. He's going to rebuild the walls, and he's going to strengthen it his way, right? And this bottom part, when we've been talking about all this, when we've been talking about the gospel call, and we've been talking about the gospel power and message, I keep reiterating this because I think it's really important. It's just the focus versus you know, trust and reliance on ourselves versus trust and reliance on God, because that's something we struggle with as Christians all the time still. It's something that's so hard to let go of. So if anything, I think that would be helpful if you're engaging in conversations with a cultural Christian is to talk about that. Are you relying on yourself for your salvation? Do you feel like you are? Right? Do you feel burdened every day when you wake up that you, you, you didn't have as good of a day yesterday as you did a month ago, and now you feel like you're on the chopping block again. All of these open up great gospel conversations that point to Jesus and his righteousness, right? And so this is embracing the gospel call. All this leads then to, yay, new life. And uh, I I intentionally left it on kind of a cliffhanger here because next week we're going to get into this idea of new life. Um. Because this would say, you know, we embrace the gospel call. I repented. I believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Even in my heart, I've received Christ. And now I'm born again. What does that mean? Born again. And so we're going to get into that next week. What it means to actually have new life in Christ. Because that is a huge part of the gospel. That is not looked at in depth much today. So that's next week. Come. Come. It'll be great. Any last thoughts before I before I pray? Yeah. I was just thinking that it reminds me of um, the story of Mother of the Blessed where she talked about her conversion and that it wrecked her life and she would never have chosen for her life to be wrecked. Mm. And and I think about the people I am I that you know that I pray for and God's kind of changed my prayer for their salvation of praying that God would wreck their life. Hmm. It's a weird prayer to pray, huh, sometimes. Yeah, because it, it's necessary, you know, for them to, because every, every uh, pillar of their life has to be pulled down for Christ to come in and change it. And it's, it's a really hard prayer to pray, but it's, it's, it has to happen. Yeah, it's a really good point. Really good point. Yeah. I was also thinking about... John the Baptist, you know, he came to, he was going to repent, and so this is the first step to do it, and then, uh, but he's pointing everybody, like, so, okay, now you're going to turn, where are you going to turn to? So it's like, this is what you need to turn to, mm-hmm. so that redirection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone's coming, right, with whom I'm not even fit to lace up his shoes, and that's, that's who... Is coming, and that's who you're going to redirect to. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a redirect there in that sense. Lori, I'm still thinking about what you were talking about, too, of just the whole building down. It's like even that verbiage and thought probably is not going to be the first thing that comes to our, our brains as Christians, right? Because, again, what I said earlier, that Jesus is the cherry on the cake. Like your life is already going good. 
you know, you got a lot of good things going for you. You just need Jesus. That, and that's what Paul Washer said in that quote. That completely evades, and it's to a really, in a bad sense, of what they need to hear. They need to hear that they're worthless in a sense, right? Like that everything you have, you're a CEO of a company that's fantastic. You have all this money. You have a great family. You have all these things. That's, that's worthless compared to Christ. And without Christ, you, you have nothing. Versus, you know, you've got a lot of good things going for you, but you still have that little missing piece of the puzzle left. And it's a whole different message and story to take. And it's not calling people to that humility of, I'm thinking of uh, Nicodemus, you know, of like Jesus telling him you got to be born again. And in his mind, he's, a, he's one of the wisest teachers of their time with, when it comes to their law. And to him, Jesus telling him he has to be born again means you have to relearn everything. Like, what you have learned since you were a child is not the gospel that I'm preaching now, and you're going to have to start all over from the beginning. And that's why he's like, well, how can one be born again? I truly don't believe in that verse that he really legitimately thinks Jesus means he has to be born again. He's way smarter than that. So they're kind of having this parable conversation with each other, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, what do you mean I have to be, like, basically, like, I'm a student teacher again when his whole life he spent studying the law and he knew he tackled everything. Everything was going good and he's asking Jesus, what's that last thing I have to do, Jesus? And I'll do it because I've done everything else. And Jesus is like, all oh, that's worthless. You got to start all over. And that's what makes me think of the rebuilding. So yeah, thanks for that point. Um, okay, I'm going to pray and we'll get on with it. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's just always great to see you guys here early and I know it's a sacrifice, so really appreciate it. Father, Lord, we um, we love you, and I do pray that prayer for us, even God, that you would have help us to look at our own reliance on ourselves. Still, that's just there. The desire to put our hand to the plow and look back, as I'm going to talk about here in a bit, and that you truly must be Lord over everything, and. And that you, you ransack our soul so that it's left with nothing. And, and I do pray that prayer for us, God. It's a hard prayer to pray, but there are brothers and sisters, including myself in this room right now, that need to be reminded of this very truth. That following you is not, you can be in control of this section of my life, but I'm going to still hold on to this one. It's, it's letting go of, of everything. And God, give us the power to do this. Help us to uh, come alongside one another in our home groups, to encourage one another in this, and um, so that we can just all grow together in our sanctification. That just brings you glory. So we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.